This episode is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Alan and Beth Stanfield of Stanfield Properties, the next generation of hometown realtors. There's no one way to be a woman of God any more than there is one way to be a man of God. But when we silence a part of the church or separate ourselves from any part of the church, then the church and the world will fail to see the full image of who God is. This is the All at Once podcast for women and those who love them. We are God's image bearers, exploring ways religion has been distorted to silence the marginalized and to justify abuse. We are Christians, seeking to comfort, heal, and free people from the pain caused by our own religion. We carry much, like all of humanity, all at once. I'm Kelly Browning, and to God be the glory. I hope you hear, throughout these seven episodes in season one, that healing, peace, and unity, and a life of thriving is possible, even for the most traumatized of people. I've been assaulted, rejected by childhood mentors and family members. I've been in the ER, sitting in the chair next to the hospital bed after a family member has attempted suicide, praying that the anecdote got to them in time. I grew up poor and with divorced parents. I was on free and reduced lunch for most of my public schooling, I've looked into the eyes of my beautiful children and thought they deserve better than me. I know what it feels like to not belong. I know what it feels like to believe that the beauty in life is reserved for the people who are beautiful and easy, which is not me. I know how it feels to know you're not okay and then also feel helpless and uncertain of what to do to prevent yourself from disappearing into the darkness that plagues you. But God. Last year... It became clear to me as I reflected on the innocence and delightful sense of wonder within my children that it is my responsibility to correct the trajectory of my life. The cycle of trauma and of adults projecting their illnesses, wounds, and unresolved pain onto children through anger, rejection, and neglect stops with me. And that is when the deep healing really began. And a huge piece of that healing process was placing blame for the trauma I've experienced where it belonged with the abusers who caused the trauma. The second biggest piece of that was to work on letting my guard down that I so carefully built around me to allow for the love and joy and beauty of the people in my life, my husband, my children, my church family, lifelong friends into my soul to begin seeing myself rightly, as they do, as God does, as a beautiful and delightful creation of which they are filled with pride, love, and adoration. Somehow, miraculously, I was plucked out of despair and placed into this amazingly beautiful life, a life of thriving in a marriage, church, and community that is beautiful, healthy, and real. A community that refuses to walk away from me, even when I am actively working against them. They do not believe or behave in unloving ways, just like Jesus. They stick by my side as I heal and tend to these wounds left by trauma and neglect and false teachings. Like Jesus, they keep drawing me in with their love. And I believe that happened because there is a creator of our world who is madly in love with me and with you and who is relentless in that love. My community's God-sized love is a healing balm to my wounds left by trauma. Because of their love for me, 
I can walk through this life knowing that when I feel like I am worthless and too difficult to love, that I am worthy of love and of peace. They help me see the beauty that is around me and within me. To God be the glory. God has great power to draw you into these communities and relationships that accept you and love you as you are without exception. God strengthens you to move toward goodness and away from those who seek to tear you down or destroy you. This work is incredibly difficult. Failure is frequent and exhausting. And in those same healthy relationships, some seasons aren't fruitful. And that is just as normal as the fruitless season. In Psalms 1-3, the passage describes someone who is blessed and delights in God. It says, That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season. In its season, we have seasons. We can be firmly planted in the truth of God's word and still not have fruit in every season. This verse gives me permission to accept and to stop fighting against the fruitless and challenging seasons. If you are having a hard time, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you or that you need to work harder. It could just not be your season, and that's okay. You are still blessed and still filled with God's delight. Even if you don't feel it or see it, you are. And that is refreshingly good news. And so I want to release listeners with this final episode where I talk with Laura Porterfield about gender roles and Proverbs 31. Growing up, this passage of scripture that defines an ideal woman was frequently used to teach me how to successfully fulfill my destiny as a good, beautiful, and homely wife and doting and disciplined mother. To them, this passage was used like the clobber text Cindy and I discussed in episode four. Proverbs 31 was used to prove that women are to be quiet, be mourning people by waking up before her family does to read the Bible, have lots of kids, be a stay-at-home mom, cook food for her family, and you guessed it, be obedient to her husband. Some churches use this passage to prescribe a gender mold for women to faithfully mort themselves into to avoid being sinful. Another checklist for us to feel like we will never measure up to the standards of the world around us. I am pumped to correct this perception of Proverbs 31 today and for us to dig deeper into a fuller picture of what it means to be a woman of God so that you too can heal from any message that claims something is deeply flawed with you or wrong with you if you don't fit the prescribed godly mold of being a person of God. The late Rachel Held Evans has some great teachings on this in her book titled The Year of Biblical Womanhood. The Jewish tradition that she studied for this section of her book says that Jewish men are to memorize and recite Proverbs 31 to their wives and women in their lives anytime they want to praise or encourage them. It is like an anthem that men sing to the women to show respect and love to them. They call a Proverbs 31 woman a woman of valor. The everyday, ordinary, and extraordinary experiences of a woman award her the title of woman of valor or a Proverbs 31 woman. You have heard me mention Laura's name in previous episodes. She preaches at and is the head elder for the church that we attend. She is also a family doctor, a medical director, a student, wife, and mother of three amazing kids all at once. During our chat, we'll take a closer look at Proverbs 31 and through it, offer a different definition of biblical womanhood. This episode is for those who are, who hope to be, and hope to know and love women of valor. So take what is good and beneficial for you and leave what isn't. Here we go.
Laura, thank you so much for joining us on the final episode of the All at Once podcast for season one. Thank you so much for for joining us today. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks, Kelly. What are some common misconceptions when it comes to biblical womanhood? So we tend to have this stereotype that being a biblical woman is is means being quiet, maybe submissive, being a good housewife, maybe teaching Sunday school or singing at church or helping with food or hospitality at church, being chaste. And maybe now we would also throw in that today's biblical woman is expected to do all of those things and contribute to household income. Yes. So what what does biblical womanhood really mean? I think a good starting point is to look at the women who are literally biblical women. So and I would I would especially focus on women who are mentioned by name in the Bible. And so this is just thinking back to a time where women were culturally considered possessions. And so they were so-and-so's daughter or wife. And so looking at the character of women significant enough to be named, I think is a good starting point for what it looks like to be a biblical woman. So we've got people like Miriam, who when she was just a girl, saved the life of her brother Moses through her quick thinking and her willingness to take a risk and to speak up to Pharaoh's daughter. And then subsequently, she was also known as a prophetess, and she helped her brothers Moses and Aaron lead the people of Israel out of slavery. We've got Rahab, who's a Canaanite prostitute, who played a crucial role in Israel winning the Battle of Jericho, and who was in the direct lineage of both King David and Jesus. We've got Deborah, who was also a prophetess and actually led the people of Israel for 40 years. Her official title was Judge of Israel, which was the same role that Joshua and Samuel played. There's Jael, who was a ruthless warrior who won a key military victory for Israel. We all know about Ruth, who was also a direct ancestor of Jesus and King David, who was a foreigner and a widow, praised for her loyalty in the midst of loss, grief, and what seemed like a hopeless situation. We also all know about Esther, who was gorgeous enough to win a beauty pageant that would put most reality TV shows to shame, but who also had the courage to use her wits and her position of power to help a people in jeopardy at the risk of her own life. If we move to the New Testament, Jesus praised Mary for skipping out on household chores and food prep in order to listen in on his teachings alongside the men. There's Priscilla, who traveled with Paul on many of his missionary journeys, and she had a social standing and probably education that was better than her husband's and was described by Paul as a teacher of the way. Phoebe, the deaconess, was both devoted and well-traveled enough that Paul entrusted her with delivering his famous letter to the Romans. Lydia, who was the first convert to Christianity in Greece, was a businesswoman. And then there's Junia, a woman who Paul in Romans lists as one of the apostles. So if you look at this list, which is not at all comprehensive, these women were not at all the same in how they served God. They were also not the stereotypical quiet women. They were not afraid to stand up for themselves, and they were not afraid to stand up for people who were being oppressed. They were all women who had many different strengths and who used that strength for God. And I think that's what it what it what we really need to focus in on in terms of biblical womanhood. What a diverse group of women. Absolutely. I just want to celebrate that because I'm so thankful to have so many different models of being a woman before me. And right. and many of them 
served God in ways that you would consider stereotypically female, but mm-hmm. many of them did not. I yes. mean, we've got military leaders and warriors and and political leaders among that group. And I think it's important to recognize that. Yes, yes. Both are equally valuable and cherished roles of God, stereotypical female roles and the more masculine roles, if we're using those terms, both are equally cherished and available for women to serve God in those ways. Agreed. So specifically with Proverbs 31, what are some common falsehoods that come from that verse, from that chapter? So I think one thing that people mistakenly assume is that this is given as a guide to women. It's actually given as a guide to a son from his mother about what the ideal wife looks like. One of the the things that will stem from that that's also false is that kind of this idea that it's a checklist that women are supposed to measure themselves against. It's not a comprehensive list of qualities that God expects us to embody. I think another thing that tends to come from this passage is, is the things that people will focus on. And so when we think of Proverbs 31, particularly as the way it's portrayed in churches today, the the things that we tend to focus on are that that this person's a wife and mother, that she works hard, she gets up early, and she's God-fearing. And that tends to be the takeaway that's kind of the general sense of the passage. But I think that it actually misses some of the best parts of the passage and the most critical ones that we're trying to be relayed. Who was the intended audience for this passage? So this Proverbs explicitly listed as as advice that was given from a mother to her son, King Lemuel. And we don't know exactly who King Lemuel was. There's no one in the the list of recorded Israelite kings who goes by the name of Lemuel. Lemuel literally means devoted to God. And so it could be a pseudonym for Solomon or another Israelite king. He could also be a non-Israelite king that we just don't have record of, or he may be more of an archetype rather than a historical person. So we don't have record of King Lemuel? Is that how his name? We do not have specific records of him. Okay. But we do know that this proverb was was advice given from a mother to her son who was, a who king. was listed as a king. He was yeah. listed as a king. How does this proverb actually function? Well, the proverb revolves around this wife of noble character, The proverb is about more than just the woman. Anytime you talk about what to look for in a wife or a mother, by extension, you're also talking about the family and how it should operate. And so the type of wife that the king is advised to marry has substantial impact, not just on the type of family that he's going to have, but on his life outside of the home. I think that there's some intentional contrast between the family and this proverb in which the members respect, praise, and seek each other's well-being and Solomon's dysfunctional family. We're told that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and from what we know of his wives, they weren't chosen because of noble character. Rather, they were pawns in political alliances or objects of Solomon's physical attraction. And despite all the high praise of Solomon early in his life, we are explicitly told in 1 Kings that his wives led his heart astray to worship other gods, and that led to the exploitation of other people, and that by the end of his life, he was not devoted to God like his father David was. And I can't help but think that Lemuel's name, which means devoted, is meant to contrast with Solomon's ultimate failure to remain devoted to God and the subsequent domino chain of events resulting from his dysfunctional family in which Israel went from a great kingdom to a conquered people in exile. I love how you contrasted that because 
in my brain, just, just as you're describing that, that's the first time I've heard that this proverb functions to set up this king well and provide a model for living so that he doesn't go on to make the same mistakes that Solomon made. Yeah. So it's more of a refinement of this king yeah. specifically and, and as a part of his life and journey than even instruction for us. Yeah. In my mind, I picture Solomon at the end of his life, at which point the historians record him as saying his heart was not devoted to God. And I picture him looking back and thinking to the advice that his mother gave him and thinking of a life in which he was devoted to God Mm -hmm. and thinking about that crossroads in which he could have, instead of choosing to objectify women and use them to gain political power, to use them to satisfy this physical attraction, to choose a woman of noble character. And I, I, this is my speculation, but I do wonder if that's, that's where that name comes from is Solomon reflecting back what it would have looked like to be devoted. I like that wondering. I think, I think that's very good, very insightful. So let's take a closer look at the text. I'm going to actually read all of Proverbs 31. So feel free to keep listening or follow along. This is Proverbs 31. The sayings of King Lemuel, an inspired utterance his mother taught him. Listen, my son, listen, son of my womb. Listen, my son, the answer to my prayers. Do not spend your strength on women, your vigor on those who ruin kings. It is not for kings, Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and deprive all the oppressed of their right. Let beer be for those who are perishing, wine for those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all those who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it out of her earnings. She plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. And that's the end of the passage. Even as I was rereading that again just now, 
the first part, the first how many verses, nine verses are all about oppression, marginalized people groups, standing up and justice, which that's where my heart beats. Usually the first part of a chapter sets up the context or the purpose of the chapter. And it's just interesting that in all my years of being taught Proverbs 31, it always starts with the verse that says, a wife of noble character who can find. A wife of noble character who can find. That's where everyone starts Proverbs 31. And that's not. No one remembers the other part. No one ever remembers or talks about the, the very first part, the, the part that is instruction toward man, which is what we also find in First Timothy. They ignore the instruction for the men and focus in on what the woman is, is to do. So Laura, what can we learn? from the text of Proverbs 31. So I think we're learning about two things. I think one is what does a woman of noble character look like or what's an example of what she could look like and how does she shape her family and the world around her? I think the reason Lemuel's mother is giving him these instructions is in order to set him up for success by having a woman of noble character in his life. And so the the influence of this woman is is part of what this passage deals with. And I think it's in stark contrast to our stereotypes of the Proverbs 31 woman being dependent or submissive or quiet, because we're reading about a woman who's independent, strong, and speaks wisdom and isn't afraid to speak that out. So I think it's interesting to look at some of the specifics of what's highlighted and to just look at the characteristics of this woman. So one thing we learn about her is that she's a sage businesswoman. In verse 16, it talks about how she invests in a field and then uses the profits to plant a vineyard. In verse 18, it talks about her being a profitable trader and verse 14 compares her to a merchant ship and all that goes with that, with the independence and travel and adventure and being profitable. We learn that she's independent. So she makes her decisions about the field. She makes decisions about investment, she uses her own earnings. And so she is actually financially independent, at least at some level. She's also very hardworking, which we see in verses 13, 15, and 27. We hear that she's a provider in verse 15. And then we also learn that she's wise in verse 26 giving faithful instruction. And I think something important to know about biblical wisdom is just the connection it has, not just with a head knowledge, but with lived out action. And then we also learn that she's compassionate, caring for those in need. She's a woman who fears, or I think another way to say that is reveres God, but it isn't just a spiritual or emotional thing, but rather it shapes the way that she lives her life. And as a result, it has very practical implications for her family and all the people that she comes into contact with. So if I want to be a woman of God based on Proverbs 31 and the whole counsel of scripture, what would that look like? I think what it looks like is living fully into who God made you to be without feeling like you need to hold back on the ways you're gifted or the talents that you have. The woman in Proverbs 31 is a provider She's confident. She's a smart businesswoman. She even has strong arms. I love that. (laughs) I love that too. She's a profitable trader. She's compassionate. And while she's prosperous, she very much mirrors God's heart and character and caring for the needy. 
She's generous. She shows foresight. She's a pillar of her family and she makes her own decisions. So she's wholeheartedly living into who she is and into caring for the people around her, including but not limited to her family. Mm -hmm. And then I think it's so important that she's a woman who fears the Lord or reveres the Lord and that that fear is manifested into action. She's not praised at any point for getting up at 5 a.m. every day to have quiet time. But she's praised for the works of her hands, which are the outflow of her love and fear of God. I love that. I, after having my second son especially, found myself feeling so guilty for not being able to wake up before my kids and have a quiet time. I mean, I'm... I had him when I was 29 years old, I think. And so for all of those years, I've been able to have a quiet time in the morning. But wow, that second kid. Nope, it's gone. I've got to find other ways to connect with God. And so I'm glad that you called that out. Thank you. Before I move on, we're going to listen to an ad for beautiful handmade pottery from a local artist right here in Houston. She's got a discount code for you in her ad. So listen up and then meet me right back here in a bit. Memories are made in the quiet moments we share together. It's the joy of choosing your favorite mug in the morning or using the large bowl that perfectly holds your family's favorite recipe. Box Sparrow Studio creates contemporary handmade ceramics for the everyday ways you gather. To learn more, visit www.boxsparrowstudio.com or for daily updates, follow along on Instagram at Box Sparrow. Use code all at once for 25% off your first order. Thank you, Abby. Abby also so graciously sponsors our top tier of patrons through Patreon. If you would like to give monthly financially through Patreon, you can check out our website allatonce.us and you can click on the Patreon tab and you can also check out our merch at our shop on the allatonce.us website. Okay, back to Laura. How specifically does it look like in marriage to be a godly wife? So one of the things that stands out to me is that nowhere in this chapter is this woman defined by her husband. Mm. She loves her husband and their union produces good things. She seeks good things for her husband, but she's also her own person. I think this is another misconception about a biblical woman and a really serious one. This idea that a woman's spiritual life, her economic life, and her daily life are dependent on and revolve around her husband. And we don't see that anywhere in this chapter. The things that we hear about how they interact is that her husband has full confidence in her and that her husband praises and honors her. If I were writing my own version of Proverbs 31, where I was writing to my daughter about a godly husband, there would be a lot about him being the kind of person who fears God and as a result lifts people up and empowers them. Mm. I think it's impossible to overstate how important this is for our daughters to look for in their husbands and for us to teach our sons about being godly husbands. And I'm happy to say it's one of the many things that I love about my husband. I get all the feels when we talk (laughs) about our love for our husbands because we are both married to incredible people. From that love flows godliness and it's so pure and good and I'm just Love, love. It's good. It is. And I love that you talked about parenting. So speaking of parenting, what would it look like to be a godly parent? So something that stands out to me about parenting in Proverbs 31 is how much the woman in Proverbs 31 parents by example. And I think this is a great reminder of how much more powerful the way we live our lives is 
than what we tell our kids. Mm. So an example of this that I see is that she could tell her children all day that God loves the poor and that he's compassionate, but here she is actually opening her arms to the poor and caring for the needy, which speaks so much more loudly about what matters and about her character and about God's character to her children than anything that she could say to them. She also lives fearlessly into who God made her to be, and she gets the praise of her husband and children for what she does and for how she lives and the way these reflect her own character and God's. So, Laura, you told me one time this story about your daughter at the dinner table and a tradition that you have on your on your birthday or everybody's birthday in your family. Would you mind sharing that with me? Sure, I would love to. So maybe a little bit of background about that is is just sharing a little bit about my husband and I and how our relationship has worked in terms of income specifically. So there have definitely been times when my husband has been the main provider, but for the last eight years, I have been either the main or the sole source of financial income. And that has freed my husband up to use his many incredible skills on a volunteer basis and to kind of contribute to God's kingdom just through his own time rather than having to focus on things that will pay. And that's something that I love about him is just that he has that confidence in who he is, that he is not threatened by that. Mm. So anyhow, one of one of the birthday traditions that we have in my family is that on a person's birthday, everyone else takes turns going around the table at dinner and sharing something that we've really appreciated about that person from the last year or in general. And so two or three years ago on my birthday, when we went around, the comment that really stood out to me is that my daughter, um, Mika, said... When it was her turn, she said, Mama, I love the way that you provide for us. Mm. And I think it was a great example of what we've just been talking about, about leading by example, because my husband and I don't really talk about gender roles. We don't talk about how we think it's okay for the husband to be the nurturing one at times and that it's okay for the woman to be the one who leads at times. It's never something we've sat down and told our kids. Mm -hmm. But I think that our example of her just seeing me in a vocation that I find very meaningful and where I feel like I can make a difference in people's lives and where I often am in a position where I'm called upon to lead and to shape the direction that our department goes in and and that I can provide for our family. I think that says so much more to my daughter and to my sons Mm -hmm. about the different ways that we can live to advance God's kingdom than anything that we could ever say. I I love that example too. When Laura shared that with me pretty soon after that happened, it just made me look at the future a little bit more brighter mm-hmm. because I know that the generation coming up is being raised with freedom to be fully who God made them to be. And right. they are not going to have to fight as many battles as we are fighting right now right. through this conversation. I just want to segue, it's a nice segue into looking at the character of God so that we can take back the definition of biblical womanhood that has long been used to silence women Mm -hmm. and to keep them away from decision-making tables. Instead, let us offer a succinct and more accurate definition of biblical womanhood, which is more in line with the entirety of the Bible. So before we specifically offer that definition, what is the character of God? One of the things... So, and no, actually, 
the thing that I think of when I'm trying to define the character of God is I think that we have to look at Jesus as the incarnation of God. He's the clearest image of God, the fullest revelation that we've been given of what God is like. And so I think we need to look at him, look at the way he lived his life, look at what he said, but also his actions. And so I think things that we can see about Jesus is that he's very compassionate and merciful. He's passionately devoted to restoring broken areas of life. And that would include spiritual brokenness, which we often focus on in the church, but also social brokenness by restoring people like lepers and bleeding women to society, and then physical brokenness like illness and hunger and even death. He also identifies so strongly with people on the margins that in Matthew 25, he says that he's going to judge us by how we respond to the needs of the least. He says, whatever you have done for the least of these, you have done for me. And that's a a scary and powerful statement. He also was incredibly compassionate towards people on the margins and people who were oppressed, but he was not afraid to be very harsh with those who were abusing power. So those are things that all stand out to me about God's character is both his gentleness, his desire to restore all things that have been broken by sin in the fall, and then also his high expectation of us to respond to injustices and to care for the people around us. Is there a difference between being a woman of God or being a man of God? Let me get a little bit tangential for just a second. One of the things that I think of with this is is the image of God. And Mm. I think back to Genesis where it talks about God creating humans. It says he created humans in his image, male and female. He created them in his image. He created them. And so there's, there's this very real connection being drawn between God's image And the fact that this image includes both male and female aspects. And we see that throughout scripture. We have all the language of fatherhood and the comparisons of God to a husband. But we also have so many female analogies, like God gathering us to him tenderly like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Mm. He compares his love for us to that of a woman breastfeeding her baby. Mm. He says, can the mother forget the baby at her breast? Though she may forget the child of her womb, I will never forget you. And so we see this very nurturing, gentle side that we typically associate with female. In the Bible, we learn that the church is the expected to be the manifestation of Jesus in the world. We're called the body of Christ. We're supposed to be acting out God's will in the world. And his image is intended to be manifested through us. But when half of that image of God is silenced, then the image of God as manifested through the church is distorted. When we say that women can't speak in church or can't teach men, then those aspects of who God is are hidden and our theology becomes distorted. We end up in situations in which a woman can tell her pastor that she's being abused and he tells her to go home and submit. And I I know we've been talking about gender and that's kind of the focus today, but I think it's important as well when we consider how racially and ethnically segregated the church tends to be. There are aspects of who God is that we can learn from people who see different sides of him. So to give to give an example, in Costa Rica, I spent time among refugees in Nicaragua who literally didn't know where their next meal would come from. And when those people prayed, give us today our daily bread, they meant this in the most tangible, 
concrete, necessary for survival kind of way. And those people see God as a provider in a way that those of us who have a pantry full of food could never fathom. Likewise, our African-American brothers and sisters who have lived with centuries of groaning under unjust systems, when they hear that Jesus has authority over all principalities and all powers, that power means so much more to them than anyone who has never really known what it means to be powerless. Our brothers and sisters from, from Asia know so much more about what community and shared life of the church can look like than we Westerners with our independent lives can know. But when we silence a part of the church or separate ourselves from any part of the church, then the church and the world will fail to see the full image of who God is. So that, that's a little bit of a tangent. But going back to your question, is there a difference between a man or woman of God? What I would say is that we're so diverse and we've been made with so many different strengths and skills and talents. There's certain characteristics or strengths that might be more common in men or more common in women. But to try to say there's one way of being a woman of God or a man of God is absurd. And we see that in scripture in the incredibly diverse way that God called people to follow him. There's no one way to be a woman of God any more than there is one way to be a man of God, except that all of us should be following the commandments that Jesus gives about whole life commitment. What he says sum up the whole law and the whole prophets, loving God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and physical strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. This is what Jesus says sums up the law and the prophets. And if each of us is doing that in the ways that God has equipped us to do it, and if we're working with each other to embody his love here on earth, then we will be the children of God in this world. The summation of the law is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. As we conclude, let's leave our listeners with a definition of what it means to be a woman of God. So I'm going to go back to Jesus again. He lived and breathed and taught constantly about the kingdom of God. And what he meant by the kingdom of God was a realm in which all aspects of life that have been broken by the fall are restored. He showed us glimpses of that when he healed illness, when he restored people to society, when he corrected twisted theology. In Revelations, there's this amazing image that brings tears to my eyes almost every time I think about it, where Jesus says, behold, I make all things new, where all things are definitively and completely restored forever. And throughout Jesus's life, he modeled and called us to seek to advance that kingdom. So I would say that being a woman of God, and I would rather say a child of God, means living into the way God has designated us to bring the kingdom and to bring that restoration of all things. That's going to look really different from different people, but it's what we're all called to pray and hunger and thirst and strive for. Mm. The, the word is that I think of is shalom. Yeah, absolutely. Complete peace among all people on earth, the whole world being reconciled back to its creator as it was created to be. Exactly. Fullness and wholeness. So in all the places you find yourself, no matter where it is, if it's staying at home with your children, if it's as an executive at a hospital, if it's building your own business, if it's working alongside missionaries in a more direct way, in all the places you find yourself working towards shalom, Exactly. Reflecting yes. God and, and bringing people to him in love. Yeah. And that is what it means to be a woman of God, a man of God, a person of God, a child of God. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Laura, for being on our podcast. It's been a privilege. Thanks, Kelly. Hang with me for just a few more minutes. I have to say goodbye and 
send you off with some reflections after I say a shout out to our gold sponsor for season one. Thank you to our local quilt and sewing shop, the Sparkly Elephant Sewing Lounge. Visit their shop in Friendswood or online at thesparklyelephant.com and enter code all at once for 10% off your order for your favorite fabrics, sewing supplies, and custom embroidery. Well, friends, this is farewell, the end of season one. These episodes are an anchor for me. I can always look back on them and see my growth and healing due to the generous love of God's people. I got pretty emotional as I prepared these final remarks in preparation for this episode, and it's a mixture of relief and grief and also complete and blissful joy and pride. Thank you to our listeners, sponsors, and patrons, merch buyers, reviewers, and for those who listen without us ever knowing. Thank you for the outpouring of love and support for this incredible adventure the All at Once team is on. But personally, thank you for being a part of my own healing journey. Thank you especially to my family, to my equal rights for women husband. I adore you. I couldn't have done any of this without you. I am proud, honored, and thank God for letting me have you as my husband. Thank you for gently teaching me that my voice, life, and very existence matters and is needed in this world. I love being your wife. And to my children, Lincoln and Wilson, I adore you, I am so proud of you, and I delight in you. Thank you to Lincoln for your constant, I really like your podcast, Mom. The music sounds really great, and you can do this comments. Being mom to you two boys brings me great joy. Thank you also to my church family. Your love radically changes me and brings me closer to the heart of God. Your love and practical support, like figuring out how to buy microphones, what microphones to buy, and how to use them, (laughs) and how to build a website, and all of those technical details that I knew nothing about, and also for getting me into the pipeline, as Cindy Dawson calls it, which propelled me forward into this work to the point where I believed I truly could build this ministry. Lastly, thank you to my guests and teammates at All at Once for saying yes when I barely even had an outline of what I wanted to cover, and I had just a smidge of insight into how all of these pieces fit together. I felt it in my body long before I could articulate what this podcast would be into words. Thank you for believing in me and for trusting me with very little to go on. Listeners, there will be a season two. Until then, can you do me a favor? become an email subscriber. The link is in the show notes. This is the best way to stay up to date on podcast news. That and our Instagram page, allatonce.podcast. All of that is in the show notes, so check those out. And thank you for being on this journey with me. Thank you for listening. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Take courage, fight for faith, and see in